Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you would want us to see from this. And we thank you for your word and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite. And he began to build the temple, began to build in the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Now these are the things wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the house of God. The length by the cubits after the first measure was three score cubits and the breadth 20 cubits. And the porch that was in front of the house, the length of it was according to the breadth of the house, 20 cubits, and the height was 120 cubits. And he overlaid it within with pure gold. And the greater house he, he chiseled with fir tree, and which he overlaid with fine gold, and set upon it palm trees and chains. And he garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvin Min. And he overlaid the house, the beams, the posts, the walls thereof, and the walls and the doors thereof with gold and graved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy house, the length thereof was according to the breadth of the house, 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof was 20 cubits. And he overlaid it with fine gold, amounting to 600 talents. And the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. And in the most holy house, he made two cherubim, the image of the work, and overlaid them with gold. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I want to deal with the outside outside of it before we go to the in, the inside. They used a lot of nails. <laughs> well, they used a lot, about, about uh, two pounds of nails. And it says gold nails, so I don't know if he literally made gold nails or if he made nails that measured that much in gold. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to pound a golden nail. So... <laughs> All right, so here we go. Solomon is beginning to build the house of the Lord. And remember, he's, he had 150, uh, uh, 150, 150,600 people building, building this thing, a lot of people. And it says he's built it in Mount Moriah. Now, I'm not sure how many of you remember what Mount Moriah is all about, but Mount Moriah is another name for Jerusalem, is the mountain that Jerusalem is on. It is where Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain of Mount Moriah to offer him when God, when God intervened. And Mount Moriah is where Mount Calvary is as well, so where, where Jesus died. So Mount, this, this whole area in Jerusalem is a very important, long history. Second uh, Chronicles 3. So Mount Moriah, when you see Mount Moriah, it's in Jerusalem. Everything happened there other than the law being given, but grace and mercy all happens at Mount Moriah. All right. Isaac was rescued at the last moment just as Abraham was ready to plunge the, the dagger into his son's son to be sacrificed. Everything happens there is about God's grace. And it was saying that the Lord appeared unto David his father 
in the place where David had prepared the threshing hold of Ornan, the Jebusite. And if you remember that story, that is when in 1 Chronicles 22, when the death angel was going through uh, Israel because of the sin of David to count the people. And David made an offering at the threshing hold of Ornan on Mount Moriah. <laughs> And they saw the death angel stop, and God said, "Enough! You know, don't don't go, don't destroy the city." And so David says, "Okay, this is going to be the place where I'm going to build the temple of God, because mercy came at this point." <laughs> and this is the beauty of this: God's mercy. Everything about Mount Moriah is about God's mercy, even though some hard things happened there. So Well, on the Temple Mount right now is the Dome of the Dome of the Rock. Yes, all of this is up there on the Temple Mount, and Calvary is just beyond the Temple Mount. So when they took Jesus out to kill him, it wasn't that far for him to go before he was executed from the Temple. But he went down to Pilate's and back up again. Very small area. Yeah. Yeah, because God has claimed it for his mercy and Satan is trying to claim it for his, his. And when the t third temple is built, he will go into the third temple and say, I am God, worship me. Well, most likely. Both, both previous temples were on that site, so the Orthodox Jews will not take it anywhere else, even though God did not say it had to be, had to be there. But that's where both previous temples have been built. So the Orthodox Jews do not want it built anywhere else. Uh, there's no reason why they could not, biblically. But the Orthodox Jews will say, well, the first temple there was the second temple there. Third temple's got to be built in the same place. So you said that's where Isaac was going to be sacrificed, and then that's where the cross was. Did you say the third one was the three or just two? Well, you had Isaac, the cross, and then the temples all in that, oh, yeah. in that area. And the two, the two witnesses will be in the temple, at the temple gate. So most likely the third temple will be built there. And I really do think, too, that it will be. John was told, don't measure the outer court because it's given to the Gentiles. Ezekiel was told, don't measure the outer court because it was given to the Gentiles. And so if they build the third temple, because Satan will be behind, the, behind it, there won't be a lot of opposition to it. And the Dome of the Rock will stand over, put some kind of wall or something between them, and both temples will share the, the Temple Mount. And God said, and God said, don't, don't, you know, don't cover the gate of the Gentiles. It's been given away. And so there's plenty of room for the temple without the huge outer court that it that it had in the past. So, we will we will see what happens. <laughs> Well, I think we'll be gone by then, but we might see the beginnings of the building, but I think it's going to happen after the rapture that they'll build this temple. Uh, so we have this threshing hole floor of Onan where the Jebusite that David bought, bought that land and said it was going to be for the temple. And here Solomon is building the temple here. And it says he began to build in the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Now, that's a little specific. <laughs> um, 
Now, I was looking at the scriptures because I thought the scripture said when it was finished, but everything I read, nobody knows, but uh, uh, Josephus says that it was completed in the 11th year and the 8th month of Solomon's reign, which means that it took seven and a half years to build the temple. Now, there is a place that talks about the temple and the palace, but Josephus said that the temple was finished. And if you don't know who Josephus is, he's a Jewish historian that is very well respected in the, in the world of history. So about seven and a half years to build this uh, temple with a huge army of people to, to do all the hauling and building and everything, and it still took that long to build. All right. Um, verse three says, "Now there were now these things, wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the temple. The length of the cubits of the first measure was three score cubits, or sixty sixty cubits, and the breadth of it was twenty cubits. So it is three score sixty cubits, which would be approximately ninety feet. Twenty cubits is about thirty feet. So the the length of the." temple itself is 30 feet by 90 feet. Now this is a pretty small building by, you know, for, by our standards, but you've got to understand at that time there was no cranes or anything lifting up, so it's a pretty good sized building for their day and age. All right, uh, And so it, and it says, and the breadth was 20, and the porch of it in front of the house was according to the breadth of the house or 30, or or the uh, 30, 30 feet, and by 20 cubits, so it also had 30 feet, so it was a square area in front of it where they were going to do their butchering of the animals and everything that, that went in. And it had pillars that were 120. Now, I'm assuming that these were 120 cubits because everything else is in, in cubits, which means that these pillars are roughly 180 feet high. Wow. Those are pretty tall pillars. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't see anything in there to say it's not cubits, but it also didn't say cubits. So I don't, we're not quite sure. Uh, but because he's measured everything else in cubits, I will assume that these were also in cubits. But 180, 180 feet pillars is pretty, pretty significant. Which is why I'm not sure that they're talking about cubits, you know, but they're still, whatever it is, 120, even if it's 120 feet, <laughs> it's still a lot, of, a lot of height. And it doesn't say feet, and they weren't measuring in feet. But, but you know, it's kind of interesting to see these things, you know, but you look at all the ancient things that are still standing today and realize those guys knew how to put things together. You've got pyramids that are put together with, you can't put a piece of paper between the, you know, the, between the bricks. You've got Roman and Greek architecture that are still standing 2,000 years later after all the earthquakes and everything else that happened. And some of those things go, probably not, probably not 180 feet, but <laughs> they go quite a, quite a ways up. Uh, and they stand you know, with great uh, lasting effort because of how well they engineered these things. And, you know, I kind of agree. How'd they lift these things? You know, how'd they get these things up without, uh, without the cranes that we have today to get things done? 
and yet they were able to lift these things up. It probably took 100, probably took 150,000 laborers to, after all of that, he overlaid everything with that with gold. Now again, we know that he had, you know, many hundreds of thousands of pounds of gold, so, but he put gold over everything, which would help hold the building up together too, as he, the pillar, the tall pillars now covered with gold, would give him something else to help hold them, hold them up together. And, you know, so we have this very beautiful building. Now, one of the things that we see, though, because of these numbers and the heights and everything, there are a lot of people that will say, well, we don't believe that there wherever was a first temple. And they're going, well, we have never found evidence of no, of the first temple. Well, of course not. Nebuchadnezzar knocked the whole thing down and, and took it brick by brick apart so that they could steal the gold. When, when they melted the gold off of it and got into the cracks, so they broke down every piece of, piece of it. And they did the same thing to the second temple when the, when it was, when the Romans destroyed it. The gold melted down into it, and the, and the Romans took it apart brick, piece by piece to get to all the gold that, that was on it. So you know, we have this whole process going on that says, and the skeptics read these things and say, well, these are too big, they're too much gold, there wasn't enough of this, there wasn't enough of that. Uh, and you know, so they will tell us none of this ever happened. Uh, and you know, this is one of the things, the first temple will never be proven that it existed because of the fact that it was totally broken down completely. Now the second temple we have proof of because the Romans recorded that they destroyed it. The Romans recorded how big it was, and it was a huge, huge thing in history. The first temple, even though they say the only reference to the first temple is in the Bible. I think eventually if they find a Babylonian records, they'll find Babylonian records about it being destroyed. Uh, but I'm not worried about it. I know God said it, so it's true. And I'm going to just accept it. No matter what the smart people tell us about it. <laughs> You know, they like to tell us that all these things could not happen. They weren't real. And then, well, they don't believe the Bible. They read the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. And so you have this very large court. And then it says the greater house in the King James, which refers to the entire temple, the holy place and the holy of holy places. So the greater house, he chiseled or covered, that means to panel. He paneled it with fir trees and overlaid those with gold. So it's not pure gold walls, not even rocks on the inside of it. He actually put inside of it wood paneling of fir and then covered that with gold. And then it says that he set there upon palm trees and chains. Now, this set upon is that he uh, had carved into it. So all over this gold wall was palm trees and chains <laughs> and decorative uh, growing. Now, I have looked into what palm trees mean and everything, and I cannot find anything satisfactory as to what a palm tree, why they engraved palm trees into all of the temple. It was not the original. When you go back to the uh, tabernacle, they engraved, they embroidered, because everything was curtains for them, cherubim, all of angels. And that makes more sense to me to engrave, you know, 
angels into it than to engrave palm trees. Um, but they put palm trees into all of this. And it says, He garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvarim. Now we have no idea where Parvarim gold is because this is the only place in the Bible it's used. And I found no reference to it in any of the um, web pages I searched at other than the fact that it's only mentioned here. Some people believe that it was the gold of Ophir, but I don't know why they would have switched in this case because the gold of Ophir came from, from uh, India as far as we know. And then most people believe that this came from Arabia. And so they, they built this, and it says it's kind of funny, garnished or studded. He stuck gems all over the walls to, to be decorative. He blinged it. There's a good today, today's word. He blinged, he blinged the temple, put all kinds of, you know, put all that gold on it, and then put jewels on it and, 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 and carvings on it. And I'm sure the jewels probably lined the, lined the uh, engraving and that kind of stuff to make them stand out even better. Um, and we know that he had a whole lot of jewels in, 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 in First Chronicles, so he had plenty of jewels, and he put them all over the place. And you, know, you, kind of, you kind of want to picture this and say, what kind of beautiful building was this? It's blinding enough just being made out of gold. Then he puts gems and jewels all over it to sparkle even more as the sun is moving through. Moving through. And, you know, I never even thought about the word bling, but yeah, he's, he's kind of done bling on it. You know, it's like, this building is so beautiful, I'm going to make it just excessive. And that's kind of what the word bling means, excessive jewelry, not just not just a little bit, but somebody has a ring on every finger with jewels on it and, and chains on and, and everything. And that's a good picture of what he's been doing to the, to the temple. He has made it so that people look at it and say, this is something special. And his whole purpose was, as he said in the previous chapter, he is building the temple for the living God that cannot be contained in a temple he goes, this is just a place he's going to visit as we offer sacrifices. This is not his home. And this is a very different attitude than most temples. Most temples say our God lives in this temple. When you created a temple to, to uh, Dagon or a temple to Athena or a temple, it was you put their idol in it and they actually dwelt in that temple. And Solomon is saying, uh-uh, no way, this is not God home this is just where he has agreed to meet with us when we offer sacrifices and he understood that but he still wanted a temple that was as worthy of God visiting as possible <laughs> all right because he says in the previous chapter he said our God is the God of the universe whose the world is his footstool why would we build how could we build him a house there's nothing that can contain him on this world. So there, but he is wanting to build such a beautiful building that says, we want the world to see this and say, this is worthy of the God of the universe. And so his whole pur purpose is in this, and this was David's purpose. He piled up the silver, piled up the gold, piled up the gems and saying, we are going to build a house 
that is not worthy of God, but is going to be something that people are going to look at and say, you have a wonderful God. And you know, in the New Testament, we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God. We need to be living lives that present God as that special, special dwelling place. Because he is living in us. We need to be able to present something that says, this is God's. And this is what this whole temple was about. This is God's place. And then it says in verse 7, He overlaid the house, the beams, the posts, the walls, the doors, therewith with gold and graved cherubim on the walls. So now on the rest of it, he's putting angels. <laughs> but you note that it says he covered everything with gold. Basically, if there was anything that could be covered with gold, he did. The house, the beams, the posts, the walls. Whatever there was, he covered it with gold. Uh, how'd you like to be the person that had to shine all that gold all the time? <laughs> uh, but it will get dusty and dirty and, and everything, and it's just a whole building this way. You're right, it's not brass, it's not tarnishing, but there's still some shining that you want to do to your gold and cleaning that you're going to have to do to it. Uh, and it would fall to the priest, actually the Levites. <laughs> Levites would have to do all that cleaning. But I guess gold would clean easy. <laughs> uh, it's kind of impervious to a lot of things. All right. Then it says, and he made the most holy house. This is the holy of holies. This is the internal part of the, of the tabernacle, of the temple. And he said, he made it according to the breadth of the house, 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 20 cubits. So the, the holy of holies is 30 feet by 30 feet square. All right? Uh, and he overlaid it with fine gold, amounting to 600 talents of gold. Now, 600 talents of gold is approximately 75,000 pounds of gold. 75,000 pounds of gold in his little 30 by 30 foot room. How many talents? Huh? How many uh, I said that it was 600 talents. Uh, just a little bit of gold in that room. Uh, so whatever walls he had, I don't know how much, how thick each, each layer of gold would have been for that, but that was a lot of gold on the inner sanctuary of God. And, and then it says, the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. So uh, seven... Uh, 50 shekels of gold, from what I looked up, was approximately two pounds of nails. Wow. And apparently gold nails. <laughs> or, enough, or enough nails to measure against two pounds of gold, one or the other. I can't, like I said earlier, I can't imagine trying to pound a gold nail. It's too soft to pound, so I have a feeling that he measured iron nails against two pounds of gold. And I don't know how that would measure out. Uh, but, who knows, he might have used tacks, too, to try to decorate. He could have used them for decor decorative nails. I don't know. I don't think these are his, his finishing nails, his, his standard hold everything together nails, because they would not hold everything together. But it doesn't tell us, so we just have to say, you know, there's, 75, there's 50 shekels of gold nails. <laughs> 70 uh, uh, of shekels of uh, nails and the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. So it is possible that we're talking about 
iron nails that were measured against 50 shekels of gold. Uh, verse 10, in the most holy house, he made two cherubim of image work and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits long. One wing of the one cherubim was five cubits reaching from the wall of the house to the other and the other wing was likewise five cubits reaching to the wing of the other cherubim, and the wing of the other cherubim was five cubits reaching to the wall of the house, and the other was five cubits also joining the wing of the other cherubim. And the wings of these cherubim spread themselves forth twenty cubits, and they stood on their feet, and their faces were inward. All right, so we're in the inter-sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant is going to go, and the mercy seat. And Solomon puts in two cherubim, just as there was on the original mercy seat, there were two cherubim with their wings over the, the mercy seat, except his are just a little bit larger. Uh, he takes and he makes them so that they each have a wingspan that is going to cover 10 cubits or 15 feet. Seven and a half going toward the wall, seven and a half going toward the middle of, the, of it, the other one was on the other side, seven and a half going to the wall, and seven and a half going to the meeting in the center of the, of the mercy seat to overshadow the mercy seat just as the original mercy seat was overshadowed. So these are, and if you're in proportion, I don't know how large these, these uh, cherubim must have been to be big enough to have that kind of a properly balanced um, wingspan but they are in the holy of holies and they are covered with gold just like everything else and just huge huge with their wingspan covering over the entire holy of holies where god the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat would sit underneath the the wings of the uh, uh cherubim just like it was originally set up on on the first mercy seat and this is the glory of solomon's temple you know just little angels <laughs> you know just just little guys guarding guarding the mercy seat uh you know and you know we think about this seven and a half feet 15 feet completely for both from from wingtip to wingtip and the angel the servant the the angel would stand on both sides of the, the mercy seat. And he gives a description that both of them were that way. And verse 13 says, And the wings of these servants spread themselves forth 20 cubits, and they stood on their feet, and their faces were inward. Now, if you're reading an NIV and many of the new modern standard versions, they say their faces were toward the holy place. I do not believe that's a proper interpretation. When it says inward, I believe they looked down upon the mercy seat just as this description of the mercy seat in the tabernacle was. Their job is to look upon God's mercy. And this is something for us that is so important. God deals with humans with great mercy. The angels fell from their estate and do not have the chance to be redeemed. Now, did they have a point in time when they were redeemed? I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak to it, but we know that from what the Bible says, they fell. A third of the angels were cast out of heaven, and they have no chance of redemption. 
at least at this point in time. Humans were created and God has had redemption in his plan even before he created us. He knew that man was going to fall. Jesus had agreed to be the sacrifice, and it says in the scriptures, he's the lamb slain from the foundation, before the foundation of the world. So God created man, knowing that man was going to sin and knew that he was going to redeem man, where the angels did not have that redemptive possibility. The angels look upon man from the demonic side, they look at man with great anger. What are these insignificant creatures that are inhabiting earth that God dies for and redeemed, is willing to redeem them? The angels in heaven look on and wonder like, why would he do such a thing? Why would he redeem these, again, insignificant creatures living on that planet. The angels don't know that we are going to be above them when we get to heaven. Well, they've read the Bible. They know now. Now, whether they knew when we were created, I don't know. Some people believe that that is why Satan rebelled is because man was created to be above the angels and that he, that he rebelled because of that. I don't know. That we don't, that's speculation and I don't know. So the angels must have some, some, some will. They did at one point anyway. Whether they do now or not is another story. I personally believe that they fell before and had their opportunity and, and they're stuck in where they're at. Just like we make our decision on earth, once we get out of this, this life, we get our glorified body where we don't have to worry about sinning anymore because we made our decisions and we are eternally saved with, and have our decision. And those who did not choose God are eternally lost and no matter how much they want to change, aren't, and when they're in hell, they're going to want to change. So you're saying that, like now, you're saying that the angels know that we're going to be above them? It says so in the Bible. They know the Bible. Satan used the Bible to tempt Jesus. He knows the Bible. So they know what it says about, the, about mankind being raised above them. Is why a lot of people believe that, that Satan rebelled for just that reason, is that he found out that man was going to be placed above the angels, and as the chief angel did not like that idea. His place was going to be usurped. And it makes sense. I'm not saying it is the way it is, but it makes sense that that might be no, why he... I know I understand, but for a long time, I just didn't think they would, they would know. Jimmy, you have to sure. They know as much about the Bible as we know, and probably more. They've been around a lot longer. They, they were there when it was written. They were there... You know, they've been, they were able to listen to every message that's ever been preached and every, every time it's been spoken, they've, they've heard it. And they see things from the spiritual side of things, not from the earthly side of things. Well, then that would be hard because they really help us and they protect us, but they know deep down inside that we're going to be above them. They know that there are servants in, all, in actuality. And, and they've taken their job seriously to be a servant. There are people, even in, in this lifetime, that they're they believe that their job is to be a servant and they're and they don't feel bad about their you know as long as they're not being abused by their you know it's they they do they look at it as an honor i get to help this person with their lifetime but they're good but they're doing their job they reckon but this is the way we should be anyway we have the opportunity to serve the god of the universe in whatever way he asks no matter how menial 
or unimportant it seems to be, do we have that attitude that we get to serve God? The same way the angels are looking and saying, we get to serve man. And technically, right now they're above us because we're being schooled and just like, just like in, even in American history and in Roman history, the heirs before they, while they were children were put under the care of slaves. And the slaves had complete control over that minor child. But at a certain point, the heir became an adult and all of a sudden the role switched around and now that slave was no longer able to tell them anything. You know, you know they usually always had a special place because they raised them, but they were put back down and saying, okay, this person now is over you and in charge of you. And so we have all of that going on, but this is the beauty of it. That God has put this in and these angels are looking down upon the mercy seat as they're, as they're being designed. Their wings overshadow the mercy seat. And all of this goes back to Isaiah 6. When Isaiah entered into heaven and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he talks about the seraphim flying around the around the throne with their six wings and, and saying that two covered their, covered their feet, two, two covered their, their eyes, and then the two they flew around. And they were to cover the throne of God and protect God in the throne. Who he's protecting it from, I have no idea, but it says that they're there to, to protect. So here is the picture of the Isaiah, Isaiah statement of what heaven is like. You know, and this is the throne room of God where the angels are there crying, holy, holy, holy. This is the throne room of God where the angels are called together at various points to be given assignments and given direction. The throne room of God that Satan still has access to the throne room. He does not have access to heaven, but he has access to the throne room, even now, because he hasn't been finally judged. So he goes up there because what happens in the throne room of a, of a, of a king, that is where they hold court and listen to the petitions of the people. So the people have always had access to the throne room. It's usually the very first room of the, of the palace. When you enter into the palace, you enter into the, well, a court and then the throne room. And the public have access to the throne room. Now, the public would not have access to the banquet halls and the, and the, and the dining quarters and the, and the sleeping quarters. Satan does not have access to all of that, but he does have access to the throne room where he makes his accusations against God's people. And that is where Jesus rises up as our, as our advocate and defender, lawyer, whichever term you want to use, and says, uh, I paid for that sin, Father. And we go through the whole thing that we see from the book of Job, where Satan gathers together with him and says, you know, and God ask some questions. You know, have you considered? I think God still does that. Have you considered this servant? Have you considered this servant? Have you considered this servant? And Satan goes, of course I have, but they're under your protection. God says, okay, you can do this much again to them. 
And as I've said many times, you know, many of us, and myself included, we kind of go, God, could you just uh, give them a little less leeway once in a while? And, you know, this is getting kind of uh, hard. But it is all there to, to prove, to prove that we're his. Verse 14, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and wrought cherubim thereon. And he made thereof of the house two pillars of 35 cubits high and calipers that were on the top of each of them was, seven, was five cal, uh, cubits. And he made chains as an oracle and put them on the heads of the pillars and made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. And he reared up the pillars before the temple, one on the right side and the other on the left, and called them called the name of them on the right Jakshin, and the name of the on the left was Boaz. All right. So he now builds a veil to separate the Holy of Holies from the holy place, just as it was in the tabernacle. And he builds he makes this veil and he puts it in blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen. Same colors as the original one. And he puts any embroider's cherubim on it, just like the original. Now, we don't know how thick this veil was. The report later on was that they had about three inches of a veil. That's a pretty heavy, heavy curtain. Thick. Well, it's, it's 30 feet by however tall it was, which I think it was square, so it's 30 feet by 30 feet. That, that a three-inch thick veil, and I don't know because I don't find that in the scriptures. It's what has been reported through history. That's a pretty heavy veil. You want to understand that this veil was very important to them. They did not want something that was going to rip. It could not be blown around because this separated the holy of holies from the rest of the rest of the temp, uh, rest of the temple. So it had to be like a wall, but it had to be something that the high priest could get through, but that it was not going to just blow open with some breeze that popped in. It was not going to be torn by somebody accidentally brushing up against it just right. So I can believe that it was a very, very thick veil that they put up on it. This veil, when Jesus died on the cross, was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, four-inch thick linen, linen veil was not something that was accidentally torn apart. God tore it because he says, the work is finished. There's no separation from me and the Holy of Holies anymore because Jesus died to pay the price. From top to bottom. You know, it would be, be hard enough to tear from bottom to top, but God tore it from the very top of that, of that uh, event. And then they made two pillars, 35 cubits, which is 52 and a half feet, on either side of the door to the holy place. And, you know, he says he put them on there, and then on top of the pillars, he put a capitor or a top. And the top of this is also another five cubits. Another seven and a half feet on top of the 52 and a half feet. So we've got a 60 foot pillar 
when you add the cap on it. All right? Huh? Well, putting the cap up there, who is going to see the cap at 60 feet up in the air except for God? Um, and so they put this beautiful cap up there. It's decorative and everything, but you know, 60 feet up is quite a, quite a high, high location on it. And it says on that they put chains as in the oracle or the Holy of Holies. So they put chains and decorative chains all around the Holy of Holies. On the top of this pillar, they put chains. You know, whether they were gold chains or carved chains, it doesn't really tell us, but they put a chain uh, up there to draw, to make it pretty, to make it look, look good. And then on that chain, each one of the pillars had 100 golden pomegranates. Now, so they've made golden emblems that look like pomegranates. And on each one of these pillars, they hung 100 pomegranates, possibly 50. It just says 100 pomegranates, so it might have been 50 per, per, per. But that's still a lot of decorative uh, uh, golden balls hanging off this, uh, off this uh, pillar up there. Well, then you'd have to have clusters, but they just yeah. made huge ball, whatever a pomegranate looks like up that from that distance. Um, and you know, so they, they're building this huge building, this build, beautiful building. And he reared up the pillars in, before the temple on the one on the right hand and on the left. And the name on the right was Jachin, which means he shall establish, or it is strength. He shall establish. establish. God will establish. The other one is named Boaz, which means fleetness, swiftness. So he will establish on the one side and swiftness on the other. And the priest would walk between these pillars all the time, going in, in and out. Uh, excuse me, before the temple. Yeah, before the temple. They would go in and out through these pillars, knowing their names. Jachin, Jachin, and Boaz. Now, it's kind of interesting that they named the pillars. <laughs> Uh, you know, gave him nice names, I guess. Uh, Boaz was a pretty famous guy later on. He was the father of, father, you know, uh, grandfather of David, uh, great grandfather of David. You know, so, you know, but this is the beauty that is being presented. God is having a building built for Him that people can say, "This was built for God. We spared no expense. We've got these." Beautiful decorative things way up in the air that nobody's ever going to see except for God. Yeah. How many things do we do that we do only for God to see? It's the way we're supposed to be. But how many times do we do things so that people will see and people will be praising? I mean, they were decorating things at, at, at 50 feet, 120 feet and saying, God, these are for you to see. Nobody else is going to see these things because they're so high up, but God sees them. And this was their process as they're going, you know, way up. It's 60 feet up in the air, and you're inside the temple, so nobody's in there with binoculars trying to see the top of that pillar. Uh, you know, they would look up, and they'd see, you know, what would you see at 60 feet away? You know, it's, you know especially if you weren't right there on top of it. You know, you're not only just 60 feet away, you're also at some distance away from that pillar 
looking at this ring of balls around the top of that top of that that are actually shaped like pomegranates and they're on a chain that wraps around the around the uh, pillar as well and for human beings we're looking up there and going well 60 feet away oh yeah they look okay no no desire no design and yet it was put up there by Solomon so that God would be able to see it his whole idea was this was being built to please God and this is why everything about it was set up to say God we want to honor you we want you to be pleased with what you're seeing so that you will come and dwell amongst us because they understood even in the tabernacle God didn't dwell in the tabernacle but they knew his presence filled the tabernacle when Moses set up the tabernacle the first time, God's presence came upon it and it glowed so much that nobody dared come near the tabernacle. When God comes to the temple, we're going to see the same thing. His glory fills the temple and they're looking at it and saying, we can't go in there at the moment. God is totally filled this place. What a blessing that would be. But you know, very important for us as Christians, we're told that the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in Jesus and then he dwells in us. So we have God dwelling in us with all of his glory, all of his power dwelling in us. Do we live that way? I know I don't live that way most of the time. You know, but he fills us completely and says I just want to pour out of you I want people to see my glory through your life and this is important for us to just let him get rid of us you know and it's hard because we're humans we don't like to have him get rid of us but he's sitting just let me shine through and there are times when you'll see somebody where God is shining through them maybe even yourself once in a while (laughs) You see God shining through and being somebody that draws people to him. So our goal is to be God's dwelling place and let his glory shine from us, just as it's going to do from the temple, just as it did from the tabernacle before, that God fills everything and shines forth and draws people. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to be your temple. Help us to see you and thank you that they built a temple that was designed to glorify you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? 
Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.